You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 332 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, we've used the last couple of episodes to set the stage for events that will take place the afternoon of Wednesday, July 1st, 1863. So far on the federal side, the soldiers of the 1st Corps, now led by Abner Doubleday, have put up a tenacious defense and held their ground there west and northwest of Gettysburg as they turned back attacks by elements of Heath's division from A.P. Hill's Corps and part of Rhodes' division from Dick Yule's Corps. In the last show, we saw that federal soldiers from two divisions of the just-arriving 11th Corps were rushed straight through Gettysburg and deployed in the fields north of town to meet a growing rebel threat from that direction, as more of Ewell's Confederates, the men of Jubal Early's division, approached the battlefield. Meanwhile, the Confederate Army commander, Robert E. Lee, has also arrived on the battlefield. At first, Lee, trying to make sense of what was happening, was reluctant to commit any more troops to the battle. And so, when Harry Heath asked if he should send his troops forward again, Lee answered with an emphatic, no. But then, despite his reservations, Lee realized that events here at Gettysburg were beginning to spiral out of his control. Rhodes' men were heavily engaged, and Lee knew that Early's division would soon be arriving, farther to the north, to the left of Rhodes. Even though he remained in complete ignorance of the size and strength of the Union force to his front, And even though Longstreet's corps was not yet up, Lee decided he would seize the moment and attempt to take control of the escalating situation. And so, when Heath asked a second time for permission to send his troops forward again, this time Lee told him, Wait a while, and I will send you word when to go in. Heath hurried back to his division on the Chambersburg Pike, and as he would later write, quote, Very soon, an aide came to me with orders to attack, end quote. And so what we're going to see on the afternoon of July 1st is that like an irresistible tide, Confederate forces would press the entirety of the Union line west, northwest, and north of Gettysburg 
as not only were Heath's and Rhodes' men advancing, but so too was Early's division, which at last came sweeping onto the battlefield, descending like an avalanche on the far right of the Federal line, which was manned by the soldiers of Barlow's division of the 11th Corps. The Federal 11th Corps line in the open fields north of Gettysburg would collapse the afternoon of July 1st in the face of an attack that was mostly the result of no one's planning, but that came about because of the aggressive improvisation that had become a habit among the generals of the Army of Northern Virginia during the past year that that army had been under Robert E. Lee's command. As y'all recall, when A.P. Hill decided to send two-thirds of his corps on a reconnaissance to Gettysburg on the morning of the first day of July, Hill, in what would be his one positive contribution to the Confederate effort at the Battle of Gettysburg, sent word of that movement to Dick Ewell, who was even then marching toward Cashtown, where Robert E. Lee wanted the rebel army to come back together. But after receiving Hill's message on the morning of July 1st, Dick Yule, realizing there was a good chance that things were going to heat up at Gettysburg, immediately canceled the march to Cashtown and instead steered Rhodes and Early's divisions south toward Gettysburg. That meant that on July 1st, with Hill's troops coming in from the west and Yule's men marching down from the north, Confederate forces would be converging on Gettysburg simultaneously from two different directions, in a way that was as perfect as anything Napoleon ever planned. Jubal Early, Old Jube, had been near Heidlersburg that morning, thinking the day's marching would take his men to Cashtown as planned, when he received word from Yule that the Corps' movement was being redirected to Gettysburg. Without hesitation, Early put his division on the march for the town. They would be moving on what was known locally as the Heidlersburg or Harrisburg Road, approaching Gettysburg from the northeast, which would bring Early in right on the flank of the Federal 11th Corps line. When he was about two miles north of town, Old Jube received a message from Dick Yule, notifying him that Rhodes was already engaged with the enemy and directing Early to pitch in and join the fight as soon as possible. As we talked about in the last episode, the Federal line north of Gettysburg was manned by the soldiers of two divisions from the 11th Corps. The right of the line there north of town was held by the division of 29-year-old Francis Barlow, a Harvard graduate and New York lawyer. Enlisting as a private in April 1861, Barlow had risen rapidly through the ranks to become, just one year later, Colonel of the 61st New York, and before that year was out, he was a general. He had transferred from the 2nd to the 11th Corps just three months before the Battle of Gettysburg. It had not been a happy assignment either for Barlow or for the men now under his command. Many of the division's regiments were composed of German-Americans who did not trust the Boston blue-blood Barlow 
who quite obviously despise them, or trust their Bible-thumping corps commander, Otis Howard, whom they nicknamed Old Prayer Book. To make matters worse, the whole army, including Francis Barlow, tended to think that the Dutchmen, as they contemptuously called the Germans, were inferior soldiers. This bias sprang partially from ethnic prejudice and was also partially the result of the 11th Corps being unfairly scapegoated for the Union debacle at the Battle of Chancellorsville back in May. Still, although morale in the hard-luck 11th Corps may not have been quite what it was over in the jaunty 1st Corps, the soldiers of the 11th were ready to give a good account of themselves if only their generals would give them a fair chance. However, sadly, the men wouldn't get a fair chance. Barlow was assigned the extreme right flank of the Union line north of Gettysburg, and not liking the position taken up by his men, Barlow decided to advance the 2,100 men of his division to the only high ground in the area, a modest rise to his front known as Blocker's Knoll. Taking possession of the high ground seemed a natural thing to do, but as we'll see, Barlow's decision would soon spell disaster for the 11th Corps. Barlow's decision would doom the 11th Corps' position there north of Gettysburg because not only did his advance to the Knoll force acting Corps commander Carl Schurz to dangerously extend his other division's line, Schimmelfenig's line, in order to maintain contact with Barlow, but it also placed Barlow's own exposed right flank directly on the Harrisburg Road, making that flank an all-too-inviting target for Jubal Early's Confederates, who were just then advancing down that very same road. It's important to understand that in order to occupy that knoll to his front, Barlow had to move his line well forward of where Schertz had wanted him to put it. The entire 11th Corps line there north of Gettysburg was already stretched far too thin, but that couldn't be helped if the 1st Corps and the 11th were going to keep the rebels out of Gettysburg. However, Barlow's move made the situation worse by stretching the line much farther. Aside from that salient fact, the piece of ground that came to be known as Barlow's Knoll would have actually been a fairly good spot to confront the Confederates of Rhodes' division who were coming down from the neighborhood of Oak Hill, northwest of the 11th Corps. However, unfortunately for Barlow and the hard-luck soldiers of the 11th Corps, the main attack on their line came not from Rhodes' position on Oak Hill, but rather from Early's division sweeping down the Harrisburg Road directly onto their vulnerable right flank at the knoll. Barlow would never make a report and never gave any specific reasons for leaving the position assigned to him and moving up to Blocker's Knoll. Schertz would charitably write only that Barlow must have misunderstood his orders. In truth, though, Francis Barlow blundered badly, and in doing so, he ensured the defeat of the corps that he so despised. As we talked about previously on the podcast, with Rhodes' attacks from Oak Hill foundering, Yule had sent an aide galloping off to find Early 
with instructions to hurry forward and attack. Old Jube received those orders when he was within just a few miles of town, and he immediately sprang into action. His artillery raced to the front, taking up positions on some high ground north of Rock Creek, where the rebel guns began shelling Barlow's line. Early's infantry also deployed. The soldiers of John Gordon's brigade filed to the right of the Harrisburg Road, while to the left of Gordon went the brigades of Harry Hayes and Isaac Avery on Early's far left flank. Meanwhile, Early's 4th Brigade, under Extra Billy Smith, was held in reserve. Early recognized that his troops were heading directly toward the Federal right flank, and that the enemy line was actually angling away from his advance, since Barlow's Federals, for the moment, were focused on some of Rhodes' men, that is, Dole's Georgians, to their left and front. And so, with the Yankees to his front in a bad position and focused on Rhodes' men, Jubal Early, sensing a splendid opportunity to smash the enemy, gave the order for his men to attack. Woods along Rock Creek screened Early's approach so that the first real warning that Barlow had of the danger was when Early's artillery opened up from just across the creek. Barlow's single battery of guns Four Napoleons, commanded by 19-year-old Lieutenant Bayard Wilkerson, fired back gamely, but the more numerous Confederate guns began to pound the lone Federal battery to pieces. The young lieutenant, the son of Samuel Wilkerson, a war correspondent for the New York Times, gallantly directed his guns from astride a magnificent white horse until he went down under the impact of a shell that killed his mount and almost severed his leg. Knowing it would have to come off, Wilkeson saved the surgeons the trouble and finished the job himself with his knife. Some of his men carried him back to the almshouse complex, where he died later that night. Then, about half an hour into the one-sided artillery duel, Early's Confederate infantry started forward. The Georgia Brigade of John B. Gordon, Early's right flank unit, splashed through Rock Creek and quickly drove back Barlow's skirmishers before encountering Colonel Leopold von Gilsa's small 900-man brigade in position along a narrow line of trees that bordered the creek in front of Blocker's Knoll. Behind von Gilsa's thin line on the knoll, the Napoleons of Wilkeson's battery continued to blast away in their desperate contest with Early's guns. Then, after an obstinate, close-range fight against Gordon's 1,200 Georgians, von Gilsa's outnumbered Federals fell back, racing their way up and over the knoll, where Barlow's 2nd Brigade, under Adelbert Ames, had taken up position. Ames had roughly 1,200 men in his four regiments, troops from Connecticut and Ohio, who were already hotly engaged with Dole's persistent Georgians from Rhodes' division. Ames' Federals were holding their own, but that changed with the collapse of von Gilsa's brigade and the subsequent retreat of Wilkeson's battery, which had limbered up and galloped away at the approach of the Confederate infantry. And now Ames' own right flank was exposed to the onrushing rebel tide. Gordon's troops swept up the rising ground, forming a connection with Dole's left flank. 
Together, the two all-Georgia brigades from two different Confederate divisions pushed forward. Hit from front, flank, and rear, the Federals on the knoll never had a chance. But they made the Confederates pay a high price for pushing them off that particular piece of ground. One of Gordon's rebels admitted, quote, We had a hard time moving them. We advanced with our accustomed yell, but they stood firm until we got near them. They were harder to drive than we had ever known them before. Men were being mown down in great numbers on both sides. The Federals of Ames outnumbered and outflanked brigade paid dearly for their stand. The 25th Ohio, for example, lost no fewer than 160 of its 220 men, while the 17th Connecticut lost nearly 200 of the 385 taken into the fight, including its commanding officer, Colonel Douglas Fowler, who fell atop Blocker's Knoll, decapitated by a Confederate artillery shell. On the Confederate side, 30% of Gordon's men fell before the little hill was theirs. Then the tide of battle rolled on, leaving Blocker's Knoll behind, now littered with the fallen of both sides, including a badly wounded Barlow, who soon fell into Confederate hands. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acting 11th Corps Commander Carl Schurz watched as Barlow's position at the right end of the line began to unravel. Schurz sent a desperate plea for reinforcements back to Otis Howard on Cemetery Hill, 
and then advanced Vladimir Krizanowski's brigade from Schimmelfenig's division to try to stop the Confederate onslaught in the fields north of Gettysburg. Krizanowski's Federals poured volley after volley into the surging lines of Georgians, and their bullets, said one rebel, were humming, quote, about our ears like infuriated bees, end quote. The gunners of the 11th Corps batteries that had been hammering the rebel artillery on Oak Hill now turned their pieces to the right, targeting the Georgians and adding their continuous thunder to the noise of battle. Krizanowski, an emigre from Poland, rode back and forth behind his lines, encouraging his men before being thrown from the saddle when his horse was struck down. In later describing the action here, Krizanowski would say simply that the fighting was, quote, the portrait of hell. One of Dole's Georgians admitted, quote, the Yankees fought more stubborn than I ever saw them or ever want to see them again, end quote. Krizanowski helped explain why, saying, quote, the fate of the nation was at stake. I felt it. The army felt it. And we fought like lions. But though fighting like lions, Krizanowski's line broke after just 20 minutes of intense combat, with his regiments taking terrible losses. In a last-ditch effort to brace Krizanowski's crumbling line, Schimmelfenig threw forward the 157th New York of von Amsberg's brigade. The New Yorkers gamely swept forward, wheeling to the right, and were initially successful in turning Dole's flank. But it was too much to ask of this lone regiment to turn the tide of battle here, and it wasn't long before Dole's Georgians rallied and surrounded the New Yorkers on three sides. By the time the 157th fled, its ranks had been reduced by 75%. There on the battlefield north of Gettysburg, the relentless advance of Dole's and Gordon's Georgians had completely shattered two divisions of the Federal 11th Corps. The parallels to Chancellorsville were obvious, as for the second time in as many months, the unlucky 11th had been poorly positioned on an exposed flank, allowing it to be struck by a sudden, well-executed enemy attack. The result was that here, on the afternoon of July 1st, two full divisions of the Corps had been ground into broken pieces by the attacking Confederates. John B. Gordon later remembered that, quote, as far down the line as my eye could reach, the Union troops were in retreat. Doles and Gordon's Georgians had swept two Federal 11th Corps divisions from the field. At the same time, but to the left of Gordon, Hayes and Avery's brigades of Confederates from Early's division continued their advance down the axis of the Harrisburg Road, quickly overrunning the remnants of Barlow's division that tried to rally under Adelbert Ames' direction near the Almshouse complex on the northern outskirts of Gettysburg. After crushing that ad hoc line of Union troops, Hayes and Avery's men descended on another hastily formed line of Federal infantry on the northern outskirts of town. 
Otis Howard had resisted sending any of von Steinwehr's troops forward from their reserve position at Cemetery Hill, but finally, in response to Schertz's pleas for help, and with the 11th Corps position north of town obviously crumbling, Howard had sent forward an Ohio battery under the command of Captain Lewis Heckman, as well as Colonel Charles Coster's brigade, leaving only Orland Smith's brigade from von Steinwehr's division behind on Cemetery Hill. Coster led his 1,200 men north through town, along streets already crowded with retreating 11th Corps soldiers. Heckman's guns dropped trail and swung into position on Carlisle Street near the college grounds, while, for reasons that have never quite been explained, the 73rd Pennsylvania halted near the railroad station. That left Coster with three regiments, roughly 900 men, and he continued with them north along Stratton Street, before hastily forming a line of battle near the kilns of Jacob Kuhn's brickyard. Hardly were those three regiments in position before Hayes and Avery's Confederates struck. Outflanked and outgunned, it wasn't long before Coster's line was smashed. Coster lost 550 of the 900 men who lined up at Kuhn's brickyard, a number that included 300 captured. Only 18 of the 270 soldiers in the 154th New York made it safely back to Cemetery Hill. Meanwhile, Heckman's gunners, after throwing a few rounds of canister at Hayes' advancing Louisianans, were also overrun, and two of their four pieces were captured. And with that, the 11th Corps was in full retreat as the men fled through the streets of Gettysburg with Jubal Early's Confederates in hot pursuit. At the same time, Union troops were also pouring into town from the west, because the first corps line had also finally collapsed. But that will be a story for next week's episode. During the brickyard fight, Sergeant Amos Humiston and his comrades in the 154th New York had held the center of Coster's line, loading and firing as fast as they could until disaster struck. Out of sight on either side because of the uneven ground, the other two federal regiments here had come to grief, and now the relentlessly advancing Confederate lines overlapped the 154th New York's flanks. Coster had ordered a retreat, but the men of the 154th, already deep in a rebel pocket with the enemy closing in on three sides, didn't get the word to fall back. The regiment fought on, a shrinking knot of men clustered around their colors in the drab surroundings of a small-town brickyard. Rebels surged over the stout post and rail fence that enclosed the space, and a desperate melee ensued. Order disintegrated, and the New Yorkers now needed no one to tell them it was time to go. Some surrendered, others fought to the death, while some decided to run the gauntlet and attempt to escape. Individual soldiers who chose to make a run for it dashed for the brickyard gate. The surging Confederates were already there, and the New Yorkers had to force their way through with bayonets. 
Most of the men never made it more than a few steps beyond the gate. Amos Humiston, who survived the slaughter in the brickyard, was among those who did. He ran up Stratton Street and across the railroad tracks. Others were running, too. The rebels were chasing them, close behind, yelling and shooting. About a quarter mile from the brickyard, Humiston was shot and went down with a serious wound. Nearby was a fenced-in lot with some brush and small trees, offering concealment from the pursuing rebels, as well as shade from the hot afternoon sun. Somehow Humiston managed to pull himself into the cover of the bushes, where the noise of the shooting and yelling in the street began to fade. In his last moments, the mortally wounded Amos Humiston pulled out a photograph of his three children, Frank, Alice, and Fred, and gazed at it until death came for him. After the Confederate retreat from Gettysburg, a federal burial party found the body of an unidentified Union soldier still in the sheltered nook into which he had crawled to die on July 1st. In his hand, he still clutched a photograph of three children. Sadly, the unknown man's case really wasn't unique. Thousands of Civil War soldiers on this battlefield and many others were never identified. Soldiers wore no dog tags in this war, and so if comrades from their company or regiment didn't find them, their anonymity in death was often complete. After the Battle of Gettysburg, the overworked burial parties, racing to bury the dead as the heat and decay rapidly took their toll on the bodies, had no time for lengthy investigations of identity. Someone, however, was moved by the sight of the photograph of the three children clutched in this dead soldier's hands. It was widely reproduced in northern newspapers and became the subject of a nationwide campaign to find the family of this unknown soldier. The situation touched people's hearts and eventually led to fundraising efforts on behalf of the children of deceased Union soldiers. Valinda Humiston of Portville, New York, had felt a growing sense of dread and apprehension when her husband Amos's letters had stopped coming after the Battle of Gettysburg. Several months after the battle, she read of the famous photograph that had been clutched in the unknown soldier's hand and, with a sinking heart, obtained a copy of it. The photo confirmed her fears. Those were her children, and the dead soldier was their father and her husband, Sergeant Amos Humiston of the 154th New York. The Humiston story is timeless and haunting, as each of us can imagine Amos's last moments, gazing at that photograph of his children, as his life slipped away, thinking of them and the home he would never see again. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Gettysburg's Coster Avenue, The Brickyard Fight and the Mural by Mark H. Dunkelman. Off of Coster Avenue in Gettysburg, the 154th New York Monument and the colorful painted mural depicting the Brickyard Fight at the spot where the combat actually took place 
is one of those locations that are really only visited by those who seek it out especially, but it's well worth a stop if you have the time. Anyway, don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 110, which is the first of a two-part look at the true story of the life and identity of Longstreet spy Harrison, who features prominently in the book The Killer Angels and the movie Gettysburg. We want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast, Brian, Jay, Timothy, and James. And thanks to William B. and John R. for their donations this past week. Thanks, guys. Uh, And then we'll just remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.